Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and my guest today is Susan Engel. Hi, Susan. Hi. So I have to talk about this book a little bit before I before I let you talk more about yourself. Um, there's a reason the show is called That Early Childhood Nerd. I get very excited about books. Um, and I think that I, I so the book we're going to talk about is The Intellectual Lives of Children, um, which I think I just discovered in a an email from Harvard Press maybe you know wanting me to look at textbooks um and I'm so excited so glad I found it it was so much fun to read and I'm 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 really looking forward to this conversation so Susan would you please tell folks what you want them to know about you sure but first the first thing I want them to know about me is that every writer's dream is uh an appreciative reader so I'm very <laughs> grateful to you for reaching out to me yeah. um, my dream come true yay um so I'm a professor of developmental psychology at Williams College where I also direct the program in teaching that's a program for our students who are interested in teaching and education they may or may not become teachers but they they they're like me and you they can't get enough of thinking about kids and schools uh-huh. and the process of learning um what else can I say I've written I'm, I'm working right now on my 10th book about uh-huh. children and development and education uh, I used to be a classroom teacher before I was a college professor uh-huh. um, I raised three sons here in Berkshire County uh with my husband and um and I'm now Happy to say I have four very little grandchildren who live right next door to me. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so jealous of, of grandparents. <laughs> well, uh, I didn't even think about it until I had some, and then it changed yeah. my life. So Yeah, and how great that they're right close to you. Oh, my God, it's so great. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I emailed you this already, but uh, just the listeners, I think, will appreciate this. Um, you One of your other books is called The End of the Rainbow, right? And it's about how money has affected or what if we educated for happiness rather than money? Yeah. Um, and I had been given that uh, as a gift about seven years ago from Tiffany Pearsall, who is one of my co-hosts often on the show. And I kind of just put it on the shelf and didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why, it, but at the moment, like that wasn't what okay. I was looking for. And when I went to um, reshelve some books and I do that alphabetically. So I went to put this one where it belongs with the ease and the book right next to it was the end of the rainbow written by you. That's really nice. <laughs> I have to tell you another funny connection yeah. which is you have a beautiful quote at the bottom of your email um, oh. from little, little prince, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a quote that's in a short film that was made years ago about a school. My son started and um about we my son and I wrote a book about it so you and I have a lot of points of connection because that quote is in the film that's about that book and about yeah it's great yeah it's you know I I don't have it memorized but for those who haven't gotten an email from me it's something like um if you want to build a boat yes teach people to long for the sea essentially exactly right that's exactly right don't get a lot of people to bring you logs uh-huh. to long for the vast and endless sea. Yeah, yeah, I love it. 
Um, well, that's so fun. Um, so we've got um, uh, four four points, I guess, four quotes from the book that that I'm interested in hearing you talk about, and I know the listeners will be too. Um, but I'm going to start with in, on page six. You so in before this quote, you've been talking about like this book grabbed me right away, and then this <laughs> this quote had me like. <laughs> Um, but you were talking about being six mm-hmm. and your mom giving you access to a charge account yeah. and what you really were longing for were books about classic, yeah. Hollywood, which grabbed mm-hmm. me because I also lust after books about classic <laughs> Hollywood. Wow, there you um, go. And, and you, you kind of describe that, you know, it wasn't probably very useful information, um, but you were driven yeah. by your, your, your interest. And then you said, I was an intellectual Sybarite <laughs> and I, um, a guy started texting the the rest of, we call it the nerd uh, collective, my other co-hosts um, mm-hmm. right away. I was like, can we change the name of the podcast? <laughs> Go for it. Because we're intellectual Sybarites. So would you just like talk about what that means or what? Yeah, well, I'll talk about it in terms of me as a little yeah. girl, but then also why I chose that phrase in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that that section that you're talking about, as you know, starts with me getting access to two charge accounts my mother had. One was at the bookstore, and I was given free reign there, and that sent a very big message to me. Mm-hmm. Can't have too many books. Yeah. Books are not a luxury; they're a necessity. Uh-huh. Wonderful for you, but to to underline the sybaritic part, she also gave me a charge account to the little tiny general store in the farm town where I lived. And what I liked to go and charge there was candy. And I do have a tremendous sweet tooth even now, but I also loved knowing about candy. I loved all the names of candy and the types. I was the kid who at Halloween sorted my candy using various schemes to organize it. Um, And so I... So I am that kind of person that loves to collect knowledge. And the point I was making, the reason I chose, and and always not always about useful things, mm-hmm. so movie stars, glamorous movie stars, candy, uh, a lot of my uh, sort of passionate collections of knowledge as a child were not particularly useful. They weren't useful to others, like that I would solve a problem for them, nor were they useful to me in the more conventional sense of helping me get a good grade or anything or impress anybody. I wouldn't impress anybody with knowing a lot about Hedy Lamar or um, Clark Gable, but uh, it just felt so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, knowing about things felt as good as eating candy to me. And so, and the reason I use that expression so deliberately there is there's a sort of puritanical attitude towards knowledge these days, especially in school settings, where the whole discussion is, do you need it or or do you not need it? I was just reading a wonderful piece by someone I admire a lot, Alfie Cohen, about oh, yes. how, how forgettable about information is. And, and you'll hear so much talk from educators in recent years about how it's not how many facts you know. I, I have said this myself, uh, it's your ability to think, but I actually no longer think that. And, and writing this book, The Intellectual Lives of Children, is what got me to change my mind, which is a love of knowledge comes naturally to all of us in early childhood. And I, I wrote about that, as you know, in the first part of the book. Um, and the reason to, 
to get people to love knowledge is because you can't think good thoughts without it. Now that doesn't mean it's worthwhile to force everybody to learn the same facts. And certainly memorizing facts is not the same as having knowledge. Yeah. But I use the expression Sybarite because in its origins and certainly in school in the early years, it's a pleasure, not a duty to, to, to acquire information. Mm -hmm. Of course, it has to be something you want information about. And that's, that's the challenge for teachers that that's not easier said than done. It was one thing lounging around in the bookstore or my bedroom with my pile of candy. Can you bring that to school? That's another question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly um, seems like current climate is, it's been this way a while, but it seems to be really intensifying that um, our, our, especially in the United States, um, our attitudes about learning are pulling us further and further away from that. We say learning, we mean school and compliance and, and you know, memorizing facts, but not necessarily that that intellectual piece. I love, um, and maybe you mentioned this, uh, Lillian Katz has had an article about the difference between academic skills and intellectual skills. Yes, absolutely. It's along those same lines, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's see. So then a little bit later, um, you say, um, uh, of course, there's there's context leading up, but the quote is, shouldn't we figure out what kinds of ideas they children have early on? And then wouldn't it be smart to identify the experiences that would fan the flames of such intellectual activity? So how how is that different from the narrative that we have now that um, we want to instill a love of learning in early childhood. Um, and I feel like that's very, what, what we mean by that generally is very different from what you're saying. Right. I, I think it goes along with what I was saying before about how puritanical, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah. sort of severe we've become about our model of learning, that it's drudgery, that it's hard. I, I have to admit that I think the emphasis now on grit and self-discipline has not done us any favor in no. this regard. It's, it's a wonderful idea with a lot of valuable research, but it's, it's the wrong emphasis for early childhood, particularly like up to age nine or 10, I would say, because while it may be very valuable to have self-discipline and to be organized and to be able to concentrate, um, we have tended to treat interest like a luxury we can't afford and it, like ice cream rather than vegetables. Mm -hmm. And it's the delicious vegetable. <laughs> I mean, I love vegetables. So, yeah. uh, and the trick isn't to bribe your kid into eating veg shitty, sorry, bad vegetables. Oh, we Yucky. swear. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Yucky vegetables by giving them, you know, a hostess Twinkie at the end of the meal. The, the challenge is to give them delicious vegetables so they love them. And, and that, so to answer your question, I think we've, we've treated interest in what a particular kid wants to know, you know, their interest in a particular topic or the experiences that might really engage them intellectually, not just for fun and not just to pass the time, but because it really grabs their mind. Uh -huh. We've treated that as a luxury we don't have time for. And uh, it's just the opposite. And, you know, hundreds of studies show that when people are curious about the thing they're learning, they remember it longer and they remember it better, more deeply. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing mystical or yeah. fanciful about saying that it's important for children 
to be interested in things in order to think well about them. And it goes with what I said before, you can't really learn to think. I don't always agree with people who use the term critical thinking because I don't quite know what it means, but I know <laughs> what it's a kind of grab all term that means uh -huh. the hard stuff, the good stuff. But let's say good thinking, like the yeah. kind of thinking we all wanna be capable of in adult life or even in, in our youths. Um, in order to engage in those kinds of thinking, counterfactual thinking, reframing a topic, um, questioning your data, your information, following logic, making connections, surprising connections or logical connections or both, all of those things require knowledge. Uh -huh. So it's actually essential to encourage kids to acquire knowledge and work with knowledge, but you cannot do that if they have no interest in what they're becoming knowledgeable about. Mm -hmm. So it's not a luxury. It's not a, it's not a sentimental sort of um, fantasy. Yeah. It's the key. Yeah. Or that's great in theory, but that's not the real world. Exactly. <laughs> it's about, like, yeah. it is the real world. Yeah. Um, and I'm doing this project now. So my this new project is about kindergartens across the country. And I've been all over the country visiting kindergartens. Uh -huh. um, it's the greatest project I ever did. I love it so much. And I've learned so much from teachers and children. Um, but what I see again and again is at that pivotal age, you know, when they're five, it's such an amazing age. Um, they are hungry for knowledge. Yeah. And um, and they are so ready to be engaged. So the the question is, what can what should we be doing in schools to make the most of that critical mm -hmm. developmental moment? Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you think we should be doing? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, it's going to sound too. It doesn't sound formal enough for 2023. It doesn't sound formulaic enough. Yeah. Uh, but I can, I'll still say it and, yeah, and good. <laughs> where you see a flaw or a gap. Um, kids need to have more conversations in school, uh, uh, less group activity and more chance for conversations. And it doesn't have to be with a grown up uh -huh. with another kids. Kids love to talk to one another. And actually one of the most fun things I've noticed this in these kindergarten visits is that the conversations between children in more open-ended schools, or at least on the playground where all kids have a chance to do it, the conversations they have in April are longer and richer and more, more reciprocal mm -hmm. than the conversations they have in September. So that's awesome. That means growth is happening. Yeah. Um, but schools should capitalize on that. There should be plenty of time for kids to talk to one another and to grownups. I mean, that's essential also, but I know that one teacher with 23 kids or even two teachers with 23 kids, it's hard to have a conversation, a real conversation yeah. with each kid every day. So there have to be other ways of building that. So that's essential. And for one thing, that goes some way towards leveling the playing field between kids who come from different family backgrounds, because families differ a lot in terms of how much they have conversations at home mm -hmm. and how far-ranging and rich and open-ended those conversations are. So one way to make up the difference between kids in terms of family background with regard to vocabulary and conversation is to have more conversations in school. And you can't fake it with a, yeah. form, you know, a formal activity. It, it has to be real. So that's um, one thing. 
Another thing is to give children more opportunities to pursue their own ideas, their own sources of curiosity in school. And like I said, it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. So if I were, you know, doing another round of kindergarten visits where people actually want to know what I thought about what they should be doing. <laughs> it's not the purpose of this project or this yeah. book I'm describing and trying to find patterns and similarities and differences. But, but I will say that I have the impression that teachers would love to have the chance to let, to encourage kids to pursue the things that interest them. And that doesn't mean let them run wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a big, that's the big disconnect. Yeah, you know, for one thing, every teacher could like any teacher who listens to this episode of your talk. I invite them to sit down and think of one thing that really grabs each student in their classroom, and if they don't know, it's yes. in the next few weeks finding out by eavesdropping, by watching, by talking, but. Um, you, you know, when you're going down the list of what you know about the students in your classroom, it's one thing to talk about what their reading skill is or how many numbers they can add or subtract. Do you know what things they like to think about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starting point. And I, I feel like that's what people think they're doing a lot of times when they're doing like a project approach or an emerging curriculum kind of approach to planning. But I, I, I tend to see that more as the same old theme planning in this like I agree with you um the one example that always comes to mind is um some teachers and this was in an article I read I can't remember how long ago but teachers had noticed the children really liked playing in the water table with the water wheels Uh so they turned it into a project about water conservation It's like, that's not, that's not matching their interests. That's not the same. No, and you know, you have to listen to what they say. Yeah. <laughs> because different kids could play on the water table and have different, th- I mean, that's the point of your anecdote yeah. and be grabbed by different aspects of it. Uh-huh. Um, I, I told you I have four grandchildren. Yeah. I'm obsessed with them. And um, the, my grandson, Henry just turned four and uh and my granddaughter, his cousin, just is a little almost four. So they're very similar in age. And I can bring out the same material, you know, play, oh, tape. They love taping things. Yes. And I have all this patterned colored tape. But what they do with it is totally different. She's uh-huh. interested in making patterns on a paper and talking about what it represents. And he wants to actually tape things. He tapes my whole house sometimes. Uh, so you have to, you have to know. You have to be watching, you have to have enough time to observe your students to know what they're going to do with the materials and what they're going to say. Yeah. I mean, language is the key. Yeah. Yeah. And wouldn't we all be happier? I think we would certainly not be having the same burnout conversations. Oh my God. That's so true. So among that, adults. I, I totally agree. I actually was at the dentist this morning and the hygienist was telling me how hard it is for teachers these days and how sorry she feels for teachers. And I agree, they do one of the hardest jobs in the world. And certainly to me, the most important job in the world. But sometimes what I see is not that it's hard. I mean, it is hard. It's hard the way every good profession is hard. It's challenging. It takes a lot. You, um, You always could get better. But what's really tough is that it can feel dreary and routinized. Yeah. And that's really hard to get my mind around when I think about who, especially teachers of young children are working with. 
they're working with kids. They're so interesting. And at least some of the time they're fun. They're not always fun. And some of them have difficult problems that are very vexing, but it shouldn't be dreary for teachers. That's wrong. It's wrong for the teacher and it's wrong for their students. Right. I have, I have one student in one of my classes right now. So I teach at a community college in Indiana. Um, who started the semester in this one, this new class, very excited and really contributing to discussion. And then as the semester has gone on, it's been less and less that, that uh-huh. she's bringing. And so we had, we just had a conversation last week and she was like, um, she loves the ideas, but the on the, the like dawning awareness that she, within her current system, she can't really figure out how to fit that kind of thing in because it's so regimented and she's yeah. watched yeah. uh, that it's making it hard for her to be as excited about the class stuff. And it so disturbing. it's heartbreaking. What age does she teach? Four and five-year-olds. Oh my God. So there's yeah. just something wrong yeah. with the system that is that regimented for, for children of that age. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, um, it doesn't make any sense. And it's very discouraging to me as a developmental psychologist, because it means no one's paying any sense, any attention to what we really know after all these decades of yeah. research. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a little discouraging yeah. and um, worth trying to change. I will yeah. say that I've seen some really great classrooms. Oh, yes. Um, I know they're um, out there. Yeah. And they're out there and they're in schools that have suffer from the same restrictions and constrictions. Um, and so it, at least in the kindergarten classroom, it's a it's a somewhat different matter, like third grade where they're reading tests in a lot of places. Um, it's um, at least in, in kindergarten, which I really have, I started this project having a hunch about this and now I'm absolutely certain it's true. It's such an important year mm-hmm. for school. It's where kids, figure out who they are in a school setting. And it's where they get a sense, oh yes, I like to do this kind of stuff or I don't like to do this stuff. And so getting it right really matters. Um, And the good news is a lot of, you know, teachers are. Yeah, yeah. And I I think it's it's possible, I mean, to to work even within systems that that sort of um, mandate a lot and and maybe aren't based on what we know about children and learning um it's still possible to be in that system and and make differences and and tweak things um, but it is hard and hard yeah uh, yeah um i could talk about that part all day (laughs) (laughs) move on to the next quote um uh so this is in the chapter on invention Mm -hmm. and uh you had been talking about a cookie jar scenario. I think Cora maybe was trying to figure out how to get a cookie jar. So you'd been discussing that. And then you said, if you watch children navigate their everyday worlds, they seem quite resourceful. Some version of reaching the cookie jar is a familiar scenario in every home. Part of their ingenuity comes from their capacity to transform objects, which they constantly do while playing. And then you go on to talk about that as being sophisticated thinking. Yes. Yes, it is. So for those who listen to this, who work with, you know, two, three, four, five-year-olds, they know that left to their own devices, children play all the time. I yeah. mean, that's their natural mode. Um, 
And one of the things they do, it's not the only thing they do while playing, but one of the things they do is transform objects. So, you know, a banana becomes a phone and a, um, a paper towel dowel or whatever it's called, the inside part of the paper towel becomes a weapon. That's not always a good thing. Schools have their rules about that, but let's say in, in my house, that's what they do. Yeah, but uh, we're, we're, uh, we're weapon play friendly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, certainly a dowel is a sword. I've been dueling a lot with my um, grandson. We do sword fights all the time with nice. made you know, we, whatever we can find around the house. So okay. I'm used to that. But anyway, they transform objects of one kind or another. Um, and it's a very powerful part of symbol of the process of, of make symbolizing about the world, mm -hmm. right? one thing into another. And after all, that's what language does, right? We yeah. create realities. We describe people, you know, once Harold Bloom, the literary critic said that the thing about Shakespeare was he was the first writer to create people out of words. Oh, wow. I think it's such a cool, cool idea. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I can say as a writer that that's the great sort of intoxicating power of words is that you can create something, you can describe something that then becomes real for someone else. Uh -huh. um, but it's also a form of invention. And so, and, you know, as you know, the book argues at the end that ideas are, are invented. So kids might invent forts, they might invent weaponry for, for dueling, they might uh, invent tea sets and, um, you know, magic islands. I, I'm now doing a research project on how on children who invent whole worlds, which is uh -huh. a very fun uh, topic. But uh, so if you if you can imagine that the transformation of a hairbrush into a guitar mm -hmm. is the first step in inventing other kinds of solutions to problems uh, and ultimately to, to constructing ideas. That's the sort of process as I see it. Yeah. And one of the things that all invention has in common is that you take an object that's usually used one way and you use it in a new way. That's because no invention is made out of thin air. Every invention, every machine, every, I mean, I, I give the example in the book, I think, I can't remember her name right now, Betty something, um, who invented whiteout, which is now obsolete because of computer yeah. adolescence and, and yes. college life. It was very useful. And yeah. she invented it uh, to correct mistakes on a on work she was typing up for her boss. But she didn't invent it out of air. She had, I think, like talcum powder and glue or something uh -huh. or clear, I don't, nail polish or something uh -huh. like that. So that's what kids are doing. They're taking yeah. familiar objects and using them in a new way. And that's the beginning of the process of invention that leads ultimately in, in many ways to the capacity to form ideas. Yeah. And, and you know, I, we I just, look at that and we think, oh, that's so cute. That's so funny, but there's so much depth to it if we really well, stop and and get curious ourselves about it. It's, there's depth to it. And it's the essential thing in adult life. Like you want to talk about what's practical? Yes, it's practical to be able to, you know, balance your checkbook. I don't even yeah. know if anybody does that anymore, but <laughs> it's practical to, um, to, to estimate your taxes. I, I, my college students talk a lot about wanting to learn practical things. Uh -huh. And um, it's the most practical thing 
in life is to be able to evaluate somebody else's idea and come up with your own idea. Mm. And it might be how to keep a fence closed or how to make a broken toilet work. Like it's not always an economic theory, yeah. a new film script, but all of those things have in common the ability to take familiar objects and put them together in a new way to solve a, a new problem. Yeah. You know, I, I, like everybody else, I'm totally riveted by this new question of chat GPT. Yeah. And it's what, it may be able to do it at some point, but it can't yet do it, is have a new idea. Mm -hmm. And even if and when it can do it, it's we better hold on to our capacity to do it. Like who would want to farm that capacity out to some to a machine? Right. So I think the thing that is very much on my mind is getting people to see that this is not just not great for children, like nice or profound or lovely. It's necessary. Yeah, yeah. I just, on, on Friday mornings, I have, um, I meet a, a writing partner uh, for coffee and we work on our projects, but also we chat. And this morning she was talking about a friend's four-year-old who asked, um, do pretend bananas have stripes? Oh my God. Wait a minute, why did she think a banana has stripes? I don't know. But then she wondered about pretend bananas. Do pretend Oh bananas my God, stripes. it's so great. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I could think about that all day today. Yeah, it's so great. So the question is, what did the parent or person she asked that to say back to her? Uh-huh. Um, I think she said, well, it's your pretend banana. <laughs> you have stripes if you, if you want it to have stripes. Now that's really cute and funny, but I mean, that's the kind of, Thing where a teacher might say what made you think of that yeah that's and that's um, what I wonder is I want that yeah, thought process yeah you want that, that thought process there. and it turns out from an educational perspective drawing out that thought process is very valuable uh -huh. so one of the things I've been thinking about this all the time now um, is that one of the differences between people who have more intellectual or academic capacity than other people is they think of thoughts as a as an object as something uh -huh. you know you can you know aristotle said that the mark of an educated person is their capacity to consider an idea fully without embracing it oh yeah so in order to do that you have to know a thought is a something and kids can think about that they yep. can talk about where they got an idea or how they got an idea they can talk about changing their idea yeah. they can talk about what else they need to make their idea better um, and that's a really interesting thing to track when you're listening to people have conversations with kids, mm -hmm. um, how they know what they know. That's another yeah. piece of it, um, sort of treating knowledge like a something. Yeah, and I, I think that's where the idea of a teachable moment can interfere yeah. because we might take that as a moment to teach about the color yellow or a moment right. to teach about facts right. about bananas instead of a so moment where we can draw them out a little bit. Exactly, drawing them out rather than putting something in. Yeah. I know this seems strange what I'm doing, but I'm going to get my dog out of trouble. <laughs> do you have time for one more quote? I do, if you don't oh. mind a, a roving interview. Nope. That's fine. Um, so this is still from the invention chapter and you're describing an experiment where they asked children to um, solve a problem. Um, they're trying to pull something out of the jar remind me i'm looking I'm, i didn't prepare that part enough um this is fascinating pod but um my listeners are not 
uh, new to this. <laughs> there's there's something in a bottle that they're trying to get out and they're using straws and pipe cleaners. Oh, in an experiment that my Yeah, students, yeah. Yes. But what, what yeah. you say after discussing the experiment specifically, you say um, this helps explain why, ch why children seem more inventive when they play than when they are asked to solve an experimenter's task. Yeah. Um, the problems they solve in play are more meaningful and motivating, but also when they're playing, they're more likely to interact with materials and scenarios with which they're familiar. Yeah. Okay, so that's the thing. There is a really interesting body of research, set of experiments that have found ingenious ways to find out just when kids can invent a new solution. And one of the sort of classic examples is you ask kids to, to take some materials, among them a pipe cleaner, and figure out a way to get a little character that's stuck inside a, a glass bottle. Mm -hmm. And the idea, and, and the research suggests that at four, most kids can't do it. And they, the research shows why, what gets in their way. Is it their ability to bend the pipe cleaner? Is it their ability to think in a different way about the problem? Because they don't seem to be able to do it. And at five, five and a half, they can do it. So, well, maybe six. Somewhere in that two-year period, they become able. And some people would argue that that's a sign that you can't innovate at four. They talk about innovation and you can at six. I don't find that completely satisfying because everybody who watches young kids knows that it's not like one day they can't and one day the next day yeah. they can't. Something's happening in there developmentally. So um, the question is what? And one of the things that might vary amongst kids is what they know about the about the problem, like how often have they tried to do something? And there's some suggestion, for instance, think about it cross-culturally. If you live in a community where there's, let's say, I don't know, we, we did the experiment that involved making a fish hook to catch a fish. If you do it in a community where everyone's a fish, you know, goes fishing for their livelihood, uh -huh. they might be more familiar with that kind of a problem. And that's, that's true in general, that familiarity helps. Uh -huh. Um, the more you know, I'm I'm more inventive in the kitchen. I'm not inventive with a car. Let's just put it that. <laughs> I'm very inventive with ingredients at a kitchen uh -huh. because I love to cook and I don't care about cars. Uh -huh. That's another example of why knowledge really helps um, because kids tend to be more knowledgeable about the things that they're interested in. Uh -huh. They're going to be more inventive with the domains, the topics, the materials, the situations that in which they've played a lot before. So it's two things. It's that they're more motivated to be inventive when they really care. Like that kid trying to get the cookie really wanted the cookie. Yeah. So she was pushed to figure out a way to climb up and reach the cookie jar. Yeah. Um, and it's a limitation in the research because we it's so hard to figure out a good experimental way to to get kids to be equally invested in the problem that you confront them with. In schools, it should be less of a challenge because there's no inherent reason not to let each kid figure out what problem they want to solve. Mm -hmm. The way that I would put this is people do their best problem solving when they care about the problem. We all know that. We yeah. all know that. Um, and you do your best thinking when the problem you're solving is a problem to you. Yeah. So the question is, how do you get each kid at least every now and then to work on a problem that's a problem to them? Mm -hmm. And in that case, I mean a good problem, like something right. you really want to solve. Yeah. So that's what I meant by that. It's, yeah. a, it's 
it's a challenge to researchers and it's not one I've solved because how can you do it? If you do use different materials with every kid, it's not a good experiment. <laughs> but, um, but it's a serious problem because uh, of what we know about the nature uh, of thinking. Yeah. People think better about stuff they really care about and know yeah. about. Yeah. It's just, it, it it's conversations like this that make me wish I was still with children every day. Oh, like, it's yeah. been a few years since I was working directly with children and um, then I start thinking about these kinds of things. And it's like, who can I go watch? What can <laughs> I go see? It's so much fun to watch teachers and kids together. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to focus primarily on early childhood and the early elementary years, um, every day teachers should tell themselves that they do this kind of approach. And I, like I said, I've seen teachers use this kind of mm -hmm. approach. You should tell yourself, I'm giving them the best thing possible. I'm giving them the thing that's going to fortify them for their whole life. Um, and it's not easy to do that when you have everyone around you very yeah. worried that somehow they're going to lose some essential piece of information or yeah. still it's sounding out a certain letter. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want all kids to be able to read. Yeah. I'm a reader. I'm a writer. Yeah. I know it's the scent, the core foundation mm -hmm. academically mm -hmm. but what you need to get there is not what necessarily what we're doing for kids lately. right yeah. right we get very concerned about having standardized children and then we, we struggle uh, to see where we can fit individual interest into a system exactly like and also we just jumped the gun i mean five yeah. I'm, like i said i'm a little obsessed with five right now so i know not everyone has that as their the number they're yeah. thinking of all the time but certainly uh, up till six uh -huh. I, I could that's a whole other conversation how yeah. far I would take this and the answer is far but yeah. but even if you think that something else needs to happen in school a little later this is what needs to happen when they're younger mm -hmm. yeah well thank you so much for this conversation and oh, you're book. welcome I'm about to go put a lot of your books on my Amazon wish list now that I know there's nice. them there. That's super nice of you. And it's lovely to uh, talk to you. you have yeah. So again, I just, I guess I'll just tell people again, that the name of the book is The Intellectual Lives of Children. And, uh, and you are Susan Engel. <laughs> and uh, I just appreciate this a lot. Is there any last thought that you'd like to? No, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. I'm <laughs> going to, that's my plan. <laughs> that's great. Uh, and I would just say, I think I, if there are teachers who listen to this, um, they should know that they're loved. Yeah. Uh, they're loved and admired and not just by the parents of their own students. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of us that love and admire what they do. And uh, probably, I guess it's our job to get the word out to more people about just how complex and valuable that work is. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's a lovely ending thought. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. We'll be back next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.